This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, May 22nd, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And in Georgia, the Democratic primary comes down to two Stacys. Stacey Evans and Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams, I know of. She is the was the House Minority Leader. She's a frequent guest on national talk shows. And, uh, you know, she's kind of held out as the future of the Democratic Party. She is a winner of the John F. Kennedy New Frontier Award from Harvard for the best public official under 40. She's over 40 now. But she was also named Public Official of the Year by Governing Magazine. She was named number 11 on the roots list of most influential African-Americans. But of all the things that she was named, I am most fascinated with the fact that she was named Stacy, and that Stacy Evans was named Stacy. Here now, some Stacy stats. In the 1970s, when both these women were born, Stacy's were going strong. The 38th most popular name was Stacy, S-T-A-C-Y. Almost 70,000 women, young girls, babies, were named Stacy's then. The 47th most popular name, also Stacy, S-T-A-C-E-Y, 60,000 little tiny babies named Stacy then. S-T-A-C-E-Y, that is how both of these Stacys spell their Stacy. 163, by the way, on the list was S-T-A-C-I-E. You know, if you added up all the Stacys in the 70s, it would be a top 10 name. And by the way, these days, in the whatever this decade is, the post-aughts, 2010 to 2017, Stacy's not even in the top 200. Stacy ranks below Leilani, Athena, and London, and that's London with a Y. That both candidates would be named Stacy is unusual. That they'd both be named the Stacy with the E cuts that probability in half. Stacy Evans, less well known, has offered one main rationale to vote against Stacey Abrams, and it's because Stacey Abrams is against and gutted the Hope Scholarship. I went to school in Georgia, and in the 90s, this was a cutting-edge initiative. High school grads in Georgia went to college for free if it was a state school. It was really remarkable, and it was paid for by the lottery. The lottery was new, and Georgians were crazy for it. But after a time, the scholarship was so popular, and college costs were rising, and the, the lottery was making less money, they couldn't afford it. Republicans wanted to gut the Hope Scholarship, but as the House Minority Leader, Stacey Abrams worked out a deal. Very high achievers still got the full ride. Other students with a 3.0 would get a lesser scholarship. And this is what leaders do. And this is the downside when you get named to these lists of public officials. Sometimes with that responsibility, you know, there's a trade-off. You have to make hard choices. And now this hard choice is being used against her, used against Stacey Abrams by Stacey Evans. It seems kind of ridiculous. If you know anything about Stacey Abrams, that she would have gotten up one day in 2011 and said, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to give fewer kids the Hope Scholarship. That is good for my vision. That is good for my constituents. That is good for my political future. 
The other Stacey is saying, essentially, yeah, that's what happens. Look, I don't think Stacey Evans is a bad candidate, and she is not also, let's be clear, she is not explicitly campaigning uh, along racial lines, though some of her backers are saying, you know, maybe Stacey Evans, white candidate, would do better in the general, and it's not just her backers saying that. This was uh, the Georgia Public Radio discussion program, Political Rewind. There was Rusty Paul, the Republican mayor of Sandy Springs. He had this to say. I I tell you, uh, I'm not in the habit of giving my adversaries advice. But I can tell you that Stacey Evans would be the most difficult candidate for the Republicans to take on in the fall. She's got a great story. Uh, She's got a lot going for her in a general election. And because of Stacey Abrams' kind of identity politics approach, I don't think that's going to play as well as maybe Stacey Evans' story that she's got and the thing that she's, she's saying. Well, from what I could see, Stacey Abrams really doesn't revel in identity politics. She is African-American. She represents her community, but also seems to me all of Georgia communities. And as far as being unelectable, well, let's just note the highest percentage of the presidential vote in Georgia that ever went to a Democrat since Jimmy Carter was won by Barack Obama. I think it's possible for a black woman to win that race, especially if that woman is the very accomplished Stacey Abrams. But we shall see, or maybe we won't, if Stacey Evans wins today's primary. But let us note this history will be made in either case. Stacey Abrams would be the first African-American woman ever elected governor of a state if she is indeed one day elected governor of that state. And both she and Stacey Evans would be the first ever Stacey elected governor. We've had a Lurleen and a Dixie Lee, but no Stacey's. On the show today, well, not on this show, but on this other show I have called Upon Further Review, it is episode two. On the gist last week, we played episode one in its entirety. We shan't be doing that going forward. But I do ask you to listen and subscribe. I've learned that if you want something, you have to ask and ask nicely. This episode two stars Jesse Eisenberg. It was written by Jesse Eisenberg. Gist favorite. And uh, it's very funny. It's so well done. I think that if you were to check it out, you would like it. And please subscribe in the Upon Further Review feed. Thank you. It really helps me out. Now, this show, this gist show we've got going, in the spiel, we go sans caca, crap denied, the constant state of constipation, in a way, everything about the Trump administration that makes me say, no shit. But first, an interesting study about men and women in science caught my eye. And so I've invited on the researcher, Sarah Brownell, to talk about it. Now, you probably read this in the journal Advances in Physiology Education, but in case you let your subscription lapse, we have that interview right here. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. When researchers at Arizona State University put together a finding of their paper that was called Who Perceives They Are Smarter? Exploring the Influence of Student Characteristics on Student Academic Self-Concept in Physiology. 
I noted on Twitter that it became one of those reductive things. Oh, these goddamn men always thinking they're smarter than women. But I dug deeper into the study itself, and it's really interesting. It's really interesting how the researchers did their study, why they did their study, and what they actually found. So I wanted to talk to one of the researchers. Joining me now is Sarah Brownell, who's a neuroscientist and a full-time education researcher at the ASU School of Life Sciences. Hello, Sarah. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Mike. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me what the idea behind conducting this study was? Sure. So I'm an education researcher, and I focus on improving the way we teach undergraduate biology education. And I've done many studies with students thinking about their experiences in undergraduate biology. And one thing that's happened nationally is we're transitioning the way we teach large enrollment biology courses away from traditional lecture, where a professor stands at the front of the room and just talks at students, to what we call active learning, where we have students work with each other in these classes, solving problems and building on each other's knowledge. And so in these classes, something that we've noticed is that who the students are seems to matter way more um, because students are looking at each other, they're talking to each other, they're having way more conversations with each other. And something that we heard, had heard in passing and talking to other students was students worried about basically feeling stupid. So this was their language that they would use. They would say, I'm really worried about sharing an idea because I'm really worried about how the other people will perceive me and whether or not someone's going to make me feel like I'm, I'm stupid. Now, when you say students worrying about that, do you mean specifically women or do you mean women more than men sharing that fear? Yeah, so this originated from just talking to students, right? And so it was hard to actually discern whether it was just women or it was men and women. It seemed like it seemed uh, like it was more women than men, but we wanted to actually mm -hmm. set up to systematically study this. And, and I noted in your study that you nodded to some other studies that have been done, but of sciences, but of different sciences, harder sciences, where it's been documented that uh, there is a difference in self-perception between men and women. Is that right? Correct. There are prior studies that have shown um, that males tend to be more confident in their ability to do science. Some of these stem out of physics or math. There have been some prior studies in biology showing some gender differences, even though biology is a discipline where women are making up the majority of students. So in your typical biology classroom, women make up about 60% of, of students in the class. But what was distinct about our study and what other studies previously haven't done is actually comparing students to other students in the class. So other studies had looked at their perception of their intelligence broadly or their confidence broadly, but we were really interested in how they compared to another student given this change in classroom where students are working with each other a lot more. Yeah, it's, so you're saying it's important how they compare to other students, not for any esoteric reason, but the new way of teaching is to put them in groups and reacting and interacting with other students is the course, is the coursework these days. Exactly. And you say that there are more women in biology. In fact, of the data set, which I guess means the students in the biology classes you were talking about, 64% of them were women. There are 130 women and 70 men in just the classes you studied. 
Right. And that's similar to uh, other classes that we've looked at. So if you look at most undergraduate biology classes, it ranges from anywhere to, to kind of 50 to 80 percent women, but it's uh, the average is about 60 percent women in those biology classes. So that's interesting because it's really different than classes like engineering classes, computer science classes, physics classrooms, where women are making up the minority of students in the class, right? And so this presents a situation where historically biology was thought to be this really safe space for women, where there was often assumed that there was no gender issue uh, in biology classes whatsoever. And in fact, some prior studies have actually used biology as the comparison group to studies done in computer science and physics because of the large numbers of women in biology. But what we're starting to think about here is that the numbers of women in these classes alone is not sufficient. You can't just stop by counting up the women. We have to actually dig a little deeper and, and determine kind of the underlying experience to see if their experience in the classroom is, is equivalent to men. Right. So tell me about your study and how you came to your results. Yeah, so we basically asked students two questions. We asked them, what percentage of the class do you think that you're smarter than? And then, given the fact that they're working with other students in the class, we asked them, comparing to that student that you work most closely with, do you think you're smarter or less smart than that student? And in both of those situations, we found a gender difference. We found that men were more likely to think that they were smarter than the person that they were working most closely with in class, and we found that men thought that they were smarter than a higher percentage of the class. Right. And so the headlines, or most of the headlines that I saw, were things like, men more likely to think they're smart, women downplay intelligence. An ASU study showed men are more likely to think they're smarter than their peers. Or in the uh, Higher Education Times, male students consider themselves smarter than their classmates, even if their grades suggest otherwise. But here's the thing. Your study also showed that women consider themselves smarter than most of their classmates, too, just not to the same extent that men do, right, if I'm reading it right? Kind of. So if we take the average GPA in the class, it was about a 3.3. And so if you mm -hmm. take a male with that 3.3 GPA, he thinks he's smarter than 66% of the class. Whereas if you take a woman with that same GPA of 3.3, she thinks she's smarter than 54% of the class. So theoretically, they should probably be thinking that they're about smarter than 50% of the class since that is, that's the average student. So women are, are slightly increasing their perception of, of their intelligence. Intelligence, men are increasing that more. And I think the interesting question here is, do we want all students to try to get back down to a more accurate uh, level of, of their perception of their intelligence? Or should we actually be focusing on that gap and trying to increase women? Yeah, that is interesting. In fact, I started thinking about this. Well, what's the right number? I suppose the accurate number would be 50, although in your class it's actually quite possible that the accurate number is higher than 50, right? You could have high achievers in the class. Well, so with our analyses, we would have controlled for that, right? So okay. again, looking at those kind of average students, it should come out as about 50%. But you're spot on in asking the question whether – it was, is actually better for the students to have an accurate sense of their intelligence compared to other students because if they have a slightly inflated uh, perception of their intelligence, that might actually lead to really good things for the students. Perhaps that leads to them feeling more confident in sharing out in that small group discussion. Perhaps that leads to them pitching ideas that might be a, a little bit more novel or a little bit more risky to share, and that might actually end up helping their learning long term. 
Right, right. We tell students of both genders, but probably in the sciences more do we give this message to men than women. Believe in yourself. You could do it. And when the studies show that they believe in themselves maybe a little too much, the implication is, okay, tone it down a little bit. Yeah, so I think that the problem that we see with this is that there's a gap, right? The fact that there's a gender gap and that males have a higher perception of their intelligence, that is what we see as the problem, not necessarily the absolute number. We think that more research needs to actually be done in order to try to discern, is a little bit of overconfidence a good thing? And is a lot of overconfidence maybe not such a good thing? Or is it something where with these students, even with every kind of increment up as far as confidence, maybe they're getting an additional boost, right? Yeah. And so, and then you ask the question, um, just in the small groups to both men and women, uh, do you think you're smarter than the other members of the group? And there, men, 60% said that they were smarter. And with women, it was, what, 33% said they were smarter? Yeah. So men were about three times more likely than women to say that they were smarter than their group mate. Now, is that men comparing themselves to women, women comparing themselves to men, or everyone just comparing themselves randomly to whoever they're assigned? So we let students choose their groups in this class. So, so these in these high enrollment classes, often you just let students self-assemble in their groups. And so the student decided who that person was that they worked most closely with. And so it was looking across all of those pairings men were still three times more likely uh, than women to think that they were smarter than their group mate. Right. And I guess the most interesting piece of data that you didn't provide or maybe you couldn't provide is with men assessing if they were smarter than the class as a whole, uh, women doing the same, with men and women assessing if they were smarter than their group mate. And by smarter, we just mean having a higher GPA, or that's how you conducted the study to let well, that be Well, we actually, this yeah. is an important point. We let students decide what smarter meant. So we actually asked students, how did they actually figure out that they were smarter or less smart than their group mate? And they, they used lots of different factors. They used whether or not a student could think through a problem faster. They used whether a student seemed to have done the homework. They used whether whether a student took on a leadership role in the group, uh, whether mm-hmm. a student came up with really creative ideas. And so students were likely using various different ways of figuring out how they determined their own perception of their intelligence compared to their group mates. And I think that that's actually a really important factor here that we let the students come up with their own definition of, of what they thought it meant to be smart in physiology. Were there differences in how men defined intelligence versus how women did? No, and that was something that was really surprising to us. There was no statistical difference between the reasons that men brought up and women brought up. So what it seems like is they're using the same uh, suite of reasons for how they're figuring out whether someone's smarter or less smart. It just might be that either men are not as hard on themselves or that women are more hard on themselves. But here is the big data point that I was really wondering about. The men being a lot overly optimistic about how smart they were or self-regarding, the women being a little bit. Were they right? How closely did it actually correlate to those particular individuals saying that I'm smarter than this percentage of the class? How accurate was their self-perception? I mean, could you, you know, was there a difference in the men and the women between uh, their ability to predict their place? Yeah, So that's a great question. It's an analysis that we didn't do, and we didn't do it because 
With these analyses, we're controlling for prior academic ability of the students, so we're controlling for their GPA, and that's going to impact their final grade in the class so much that their perception, any difference in perception, basically gets washed away. I don't know if that makes sense. So I would predict that it would influence their final grade in the course, but it's very difficult to actually measure that because it's probably going to be such a small impact on their final grade. And so a lot of these kind of issues related to confidence or perception, it's really hard to actually show a tangible change in grade. But what is probably happening is it's a combination of a lot of these factors that are influencing that. I guess the uh, the big question I have is, is your contribution to the body of knowledge about the self-perception of students and gender, how would you describe it? Is this yeah. the first landmark study about biology? Does this give us extra information about just gender dynamics and sciences? Go ahead. What have you really indicated or shown yes. in your study? So I, I think it echoes prior work showing gender differences in science. I think the novel aspect of it is really looking at that perception of someone's intelligence compared to other students. And as these college classrooms are changing, we need to be caring a lot more about who students are working with and how those interactions with other students in the class could impact students' own perceptions. And while I think it's less interesting in terms of the impact on their grades itself, I think it's way more interesting in terms of how their perceptions of their intelligence are going to impact other behaviors in the classroom how much they're willing to share out their ideas, how much they're willing to take on a leadership role in the groups. And then how do other students then perceive them? So if a student has a higher perception of their intelligence compared to other students, if they participate more, as as our study actually showed, that they are going to have a higher uh, self-reported participation rate, then do other students start to notice? And do, then do other students start to think that that they're leaders? And do other students' behaviors then actually change? And do instructors actually look at those students and start to write letters of recommendation for those students as the top students? And is that where we start to see more of gender gaps? I'm all in favor of knowledge, and I'm also in favor of people having a, an a, more or less accurate perception of themselves. Mm-hmm. Though, as we talked about, having a little confidence is good. But just the basic fact that there are twice as many female students as men, how much rejiggering should be done with the life sciences yeah. itself to change the experience, to be more welcoming? I know that's a discussion with computer science, but with biology, there's a two-to-one ratio. It seems uh, decently welcoming to women. Yeah, that's a great question. So, at the undergraduate level, it is uh, welcoming, and even at the graduate level. But if you still look at faculty positions in biology, if you still look at career paths in biology, men are still dominating. And if you look at, do you uh, think people, that's a function of? Do you think maybe that's a function of time that it, that maybe this next generation will equal that out? So some people have argued that it's uh, it's due to kind of career decisions and life decisions and uh, and more women wanting to have families and taking on more family roles. We would argue, though, that these small little cuts in confidence and in uh, their perception of their abilities to do biology, maybe it's not going to affect their grade at the end of the course, or maybe it's not even going to affect their decision to persist in biology as an undergraduate, but we would predict that it's actually going to affect uh, them uh, more long term. And we 
do start to see gender biases in biology as we continue up uh, the, the ladder. The other thing to think about with this type of work is even though we're doing in biology, we would envision if biology is probably one of the, the safer places for women because of the majority of women in the class, that we would predict similar results should actually be apparent in physics classrooms, in chemistry classrooms, in engineering classrooms, in computer science classrooms. But actually, we would probably predict that the gaps are bigger. And so an area we'd like to take this is actually expanding into other disciplines, seeing if these gaps are bigger and seeing if, if these uh, factors can actually influence whether or not students are, are persisting in those domains as well. Sarah Brunell is a neuroscientist, but she's actually a full-time education researcher, and she was one of the authors of the study that asks and answers who perceives they are smarter exploring the influence of student characteristics on student academic self-concept in physiology. Thank you. Thanks. And now the spiel. There is a no-shit quality to the news these days. This makes one question, if it even is news, if the answer is always no shit. Paul Ryan can't get a farm bill through because of defections from conservatives within the Republican caucus. No shit. And then the Korean summit. According to the Associated Press, Trump has been, quote, almost singularly focused on the pageantry of the summit, including the suspenseful rollout of details he has not been deeply engaged in briefing materials on North Korea's nuclear program. No shit. And today, he said the summit might not even happen. We will see. Uh, but we are talking. Uh, the meeting scheduled, as you know, on June 12th in Singapore. And uh, whether or not it happens, you'll be knowing pretty soon. But we're talking right now. Oh, man, there goes the Nobel. So close. Or maybe this was just Trump hyping up the uncertainty before reveal, big reveal, reality show style. Or maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe it's just a, a, a tendency he can't get over, like when he hyped, maybe I'll tell you if there are secret recordings of Comey. There weren't. What, what was the usefulness of that? And of course, if there is a summit, he'll go and say, you know, everybody was saying there wouldn't be a summit when really it was just him who was saying there might not be a summit. As if summit, just to have a summit as if that is a strategy, as if a handshake before the cameras equals a deal. If there isn't a summit, I will definitely say no shit. And if there is just a photo op summit that doesn't lead to change, I will again say no shit. Everything and its opposite, no shit. Because it's all shit. He's just full of shit. On tariffs, on trade, on DACA, Trump has instituted some policies, a few policies, mostly conservative policies. And when he does, I've been trying to figure this out. When does he actually do something? Here is what usually happens. There is a staffer, a staffer with a considerable amount of power for whom the policies are very important. And the staffer is a competent person. He has follow through. He's or she, usually he, I think almost always he, is smart, relatively smart. Such staffers are Scott Pruitt. He was really committed to gutting environmental regulations. He's really doing it. Jeff Sessions is such a staffer when it comes to, say, criminal detention of immigrants. John Kelly was definitely a staffer who had these qualities when he ran Homeland Security. But let's look at tariffs. 
I mean, they were the domain of Peter Navarro, who seems to have just no juice within the administration. He was excluded from important meetings. Then you got Wilbur Ross and Steve Mnuchin, not dumb guys, but government neophytes who probably in their heart of hearts know that tariffs will do more harm than good. So big proposal and then a quieter walk back. No shit. Every infrastructure week that goes nowhere. No shit. Another breaking no shit Trump story today. It turns out, and this is going to knock your MAGA hat off your head. Politico reports headline, too inconvenient. Trump goes rogue on phone security. The president has kept features at risk for hacking and resisted efforts by staff to inspect the phone he uses for tweeting. Well, this gets a big old no shit from me. And it should get the same no shit from you, you just listener, because I asked ex-CIA director Mike Hayden this exactly when he was on the show about three weeks ago. Okay, here's my last question. Is President Trump's cell phone secure? We uh, told President Obama, who wanted to keep his cell phone secure, that if he insisted on using his cell phone, he is vulnerable to interception from practically every unfriendly embassy in his national capital. And so President Trump did not take that advice and he's using his cell phone. A lot of presidents keep using their phone. One helps, one hopes they don't say anything they shouldn't be saying. That one hopes that they think about who's listening before they say what they say. Wait, are you telling me that Trump might be among the set of presidents who doesn't really think too far ahead about what they say on an insecure phone? Yeah, no shit. Sure, the guy on the other end is usually Sean Hannity, but sometimes it's not. And it could hurt American security. I mean, why, why would I think that our president doesn't take every security precaution available to him? Is it partly because of the never-refuted report that he had sex with Stormy Daniels without wearing a condom? Maybe, maybe because of that. I believe that Trump has demonstrated, let us say, a lot of evidence to suggest that he might not be the most careful, most cautious, most dedicated to the best practices of internet hygiene, security hygiene, or just literal hygiene. I have no idea if there was a P-tape, but I am sure that I will be saying over and over again for some time to come, no shit. That's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname is the producer of The Gist. He beat out Pierre Mianabe for the job. Mianabe went on to form an online auction site specifically for the Mian people of China, Laos, and Vietnam. Mary Wilson is the senior producer of The Gist. Not only do you know many other Marys, you know many other Mary Wilsons. Mary Wilson herself has reported on this. Fun fact, top girl's name over the past hundred years, according to the Social Security Agency, is Mary. There were 3,393,000 girls named Mary. And the next highest is Patricia. That only has 1.5 million. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast. You know, when he's feeling lonely and yearns for a rival, he imagines a Stefan Lichtai who's just like him, but with an eye patch and a little less flair. The gist, we are the one and only gist, except when you consider Crochet Cast with Genie Gist, which stopped putting out podcasts in 2006. And that is a shame because I'm half done with this Afghan and I don't know how to end it. Umpru depru du Peru. And please read and listen to upon further review. And thanks for listening.